Hello, and welcome back to another coffee sode of They Don't Teach This in Law School. As always, this is one of the many episodes in between the main interview shows that I know you love oh so much, in which whenever possible, just kick back, have a cup of coffee or tea or water or soda, whatever it is that you enjoy. I'm enjoying uh, some Café du Monde this morning, which sounds really fancy, but the reason I like it is because it basically tastes like you're drinking the burned down remnants of your favorite childhood cabin that you stayed in. I grew up uh, part of my childhood up in Michigan, significant portion, and we would go to cabins up there, Glen Lake, up and go up to Ludington, Ludington, go play at Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes. These are all Michigan references <laughs> that like no one else gets, but that's what this Cafe du Monde, this uh, hickory or uh, chicory or whatever it is, tastes like. Um, cooking it up in the Mocha Express. Uh, and then doing a hot water pour over for a pseudo Americano. So that's what I'm enjoying right now. And I hope you're having fun as well. So what I want to talk about here is uh, a book that I recommended to a few folks recently, and I want to give it another life, essentially. And it's a book by Chris Giebo, G-U-I-L-L-E-B-E-A-U. And the book is called The $100 Startup. It was actually published over a decade ago, but it is one of the most influential books of my life. Uh, quietly, it probably has inspired more in me than uh, no more than maybe five other books have a higher ranking in my life than The $100 Startup. And so I got hooked on this book uh, because I was doing some freelance copywriting, some freelance marketing uh, back in the day while working uh, for GLM, while also uh, working at a couple other places and starting to look into how could I have my own outlet, right? It wouldn't be for more than a decade that I would go fully into business on my own, but I've always had side projects. I wouldn't even call them side hustles, but side projects that I would take on little bits of money here and there for various projects. But the $100 startup, what it validated for me was the idea of it doesn't take a lot to get started. And the reason I'm bringing this book up in right now is there are a lot of firms I work with that have far more than $100 to get started. They have maybe $100,000 to get started on their newest marketing project, on their newest upgrade to their operations, uh, to fix the issues that they're experiencing or to launch into the next stage of growth. The problem is we can become so focused on the big fix, like the max out, that we never, I mean, we, we fail to get scrappy again. And you learn a lot when you get scrappy, when you, as Steve Jobs talked about, when you move fast, or was it Zuckerberg, probably, move, move fast and break things, right? I think that was Zuckerberg's uh, deal with Facebook, and it became the official mantra of Silicon Valley. And when we're always focused on how do we go with the max version, sometimes we just, we never hit the marketplace. And what I love about this book, The $100 Startup, is it's so focused on creating people uh, creating their own gigs and opportunities that usually pay somewhere between say 40 and $120,000 per year, which isn't the range that we're necessarily shooting for you and me. You know, we have far grander ambitions, many of us already exceeding that number. But the question may be, you know, what's my next, what's my next test balloon that I fly? I, I talk in test balloons with some frequency because Test balloons can tell us a lot about the market 
without us having to get fully invested into it. So for example, if you think that you've got the next great referral letter and this amazing offer and this really overworked, maybe overcooked uh, sales letter or sales package or follow-up system, sometimes what you really just need to do is do the $100 startup version of it, which is let's put you know, 50 pieces of mail in 50 envelopes and get it out the door with a simple, uh, more succinct version of the message and just see how the, the, the market reacts to it rather than waiting around for perfect to happen. You have this in a lot of marketing. I think the $100 startup is perfect for when we talk about marketing in particular, because it just says we can attack a small space and figure out how to get leverage within a specific community. And this is definitely a big focus with a lot of law firm owners that I coach, where they're looking to go for specific communities, whether that is uh whether that is a different zip code, whether it is, uh, say, the Spanish-speaking community or an Indian population or a Korean population uh, or just a different type of business owner or a different level of affluence. And they're thinking about how do I tap into different communities? The $100 startup is a compelling, energetic framework to get you moving into that community to, to remind you that the $1 million win is still built on the back of the first $100,000, which is built on the back of the first $10,000 and making that first $10,000 and validating a premise in order to make it a million dollar opportunity is huge. I think about even work that I've done within the coaching, info, marketing, training product, yada, yada sphere. So much of it has been based on little uh, little test balloons that help me understand what the market really wants, what really speaks to people. And that's another lesson within this book is finding a receptive audience. What do people actually want to hear from you? And what I find really fun about the $100 startup, and this is almost a tangent, but directly related at the same time, is the framework encourages getting involved, like leading a community, even if you're not the expert of that community. So let's say you want to get more referrals to your firm from trial lawyers. And so you put together a list serve for trial lawyers. And every now and then you try and bring in an outside voice to provide some guidance, some tactics, some feedback, whatever it might be, maybe a group Zoom session, mini mastermind, whatever that looks like. And you're just bringing people together who have this common interest and you sit at the front of the table, right? That is the positioning that you grant yourself. A lot of times we wait around for someone to give us permission to sit at the front of the table when instead what we need to do is just build our own daggum table and put ourselves at the front of it. So that's the challenge I would issue here is what's your version of building that table? What is your version of there's a community I want to tap into? I am not the front runner of the community. I am not uh, the licensed gatekeeper of it. I'm not even the full on expert, but it is not well organized. This is actually a huge opportunity here. One of the uh, examples that Gabo uses in the book is he talks about um, people who have websites based around uh, chicken farming at their homes. 
And this woman start woman or man, I can't remember. Uh, this individual started up this website, this forum about keeping chickens and other small livestock at your home. And this person was not the go-to expert. Part of the reason they formed this forum, this online space, was for their own learning, but also in order to share what they had done with people who are behind them on the journey and build this community. And eventually she was able to monetize this community through uh, ads and other things, things that honestly don't make nearly as much money as your ability to go and get cases for your law firm. You have a highly monetizable uh, back-end service for all this. When you tap into a community, if your front end is, I'm going to bring this community together, your back end is getting referrals out of it. But Now, let me explain front end and back end real quick after I take a sip of coffee here. Let me do this on mic and see how much people hate this. <sighs> Perfect. Okay. Oh, that's really, really good. Boy, oh boy. It does have uh, I do love my coffee to, even though I have a gutter palate, um, there is something to be said for coffee that feels like it is issuing a, some type of threat to you as you drink it because it is so dark and so, uh, so flavorful as to be issuing a threat on your life as you drink it. So front end versus back end. Front end is very simply what we offer up front. There are a lot of businesses that are built entirely around what we would call a front end offer. That is their primary path of making money. Uh, I have a friend who, or acquaintance perhaps, um, Traven, who he is in the survivalist space. I'm not personally in that space, but he is. Uh, and his company that he runs makes almost all of their money on the front end. It's their front end offers. It's Things like ebooks, uh, some basic equipment sales. A lot of people buy one thing and then they maybe buy another thing that's of equal value, kind of equal margin. What he doesn't have is a, a heavy back end for the business where there's, say, a subscription model. There's really high end margin products on the back end. So he has to make the money on the front end currently. There are other businesses where the front end is at best a break even and oftentimes a loss leader and all the money is made on the back end. And that's really what your law firm looks like. You are almost entirely a back end business. You, your front end could be free offers. It could be webinars. It can obviously be books and boy, oh boy, you know, publishing a book, still one of uh, still a, a game changing opportunity for you. And you put those materials out there in order to get people in the funnel to push them towards the back end, right? To push them towards hiring you to whether it's contingency, transactional, uh, fixed fee, hourly, you know, whatever, however uh, we, we are monetizing it. That's what we try to do is we're a back end business. Um, even my own coaching business, Law Firm Alchemy, is built as a back-end business. Now, I will develop front-end over time um, that will have front-end profitability, uh, but the main is the main money is made on the back-end, people moving into coaching and other offerings that come out uh, to existing buyers or existing people on the list. So that's one of the things that Gabo talks about is, you know, the creating that community that could be your front end opportunity. If we really view it through that filter of how do I create my front end? How do I um, establish new relationships and do so without having to do the big grand dramatic gesture? What's the, 
you know, the skunk works scrummed up version that is all kinetic energy and leveraging enthusiasm, leveraging authenticity, leveraging earnest interest, leveraging human connection that cracks you into a space. And again, this is just why the $100 startup speaks to me so much. It's so about, hey, get in there, be scrappy, uh, get the first sale as soon as possible. I actually just, I'm flipping through the pages here. And that's one of the things that talks about in all caps, get the first sale as soon as possible. You need to validate your ideas. Everyone has a lot of great ideas, right? Everyone thinks up great ideas all the time. Uh, Sarah Blakely, the creator of Spanx, she gets stopped by women all the time who, so Sarah, one of the reasons that she created Spanx is she was cutting the feet off of her pantyhose. Um, and so it was just acting as kind of a shapewear type type of thing. And she realized she could make it better. And there are other women who have come up to her and said, you know, I've been cut. I had been cutting the feet off of my pantyhose for a long time. Why didn't I come up with Spanx? And she says, the reason is, is she went and took action. She went around and talked with, uh, uh, talked with fabric mills, talked with uh, uh, clothing assemblers, um, you know, manufacturers, and worked to get the deals and kept looking to validate uh, and find opportunity as opposed to only ever thinking about it. And she had that maximum level of conviction. And by the way, conviction is really important. Even within this book, The $100 Startup, uh, Chris talks about how you do need to have some level of actual passion and interest. Now, passion and interest can come in two different forms. Let me say this. Sometimes there is just a deep connection with a particular community. I have a coaching client who there is a particular community that he has been helping for over a decade, but he is really committed now to spreading his influence much wider and making a uh, more direct approach to that community and serving them at a whole new exciting level. And that is phenomenal. He will have tremendous success in doing this. On the flip side, for some people, serving uh, a particular community, the vehicle to doing that has more to do with, yes, the business opportunity. But maybe it's the business opportunity saying like, look, our firm helps people of this particular level of wealth or this particular type of case, file, claim, et cetera. And we know that we want to reach more people. We're deeply passionate about what we do. And yes, we're deeply passionate about making money while doing it. And that passion carries you into a community. So let's take a look at um, Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income. So Pat uh, entered the Pokemon card trading space, right? So now we're like, I'm speaking Greek to a few people. Uh, although, I mean, Pokemon was a huge phenomenon. We all know Pokemon. So Pat Flynn goes in there and he starts building like a world-class YouTube channel. And he ends up uh, putting on a, a huge event, an extremely taxing event recently that brought all this community together. But it was all kind of test ballooned through this YouTube channel and figuring out does he have enough people in his existing audience and can he build a big enough audience to then monetize this, to make this a real potential business for him? And that doesn't happen if he goes into it saying, okay, I'm putting $250,000 down on, you know, tapping into 
uh, this market and seeing if I can be in it. Instead, authenticity kind of carried him into it. It's something that he was already he was already looking at the collecting space, but part of it was the interest in just collecting the cards, potentially flipping them, not necessarily playing with the cards, all this other stuff that can be done. And that ended up becoming a monetizable opportunity that you don't get to if you don't have the scrappiness to just go and implement. So I want you to pick up a copy of the $100 startup. Tell me your thoughts. And oh, by the way, pick up a copy for your kids, honestly. So I have I have my personal copy. When my girls uh, hit their teenage years, they will absolutely, probably before then, honestly, probably about 10 years old, which one of them is not that far off at this point, will get a copy of this book. And I want them to read it. And I want them to think about what would their version of the $100 startup be? I, I, All right, so inside baseball and family stuff. My plan will be once they have an idea that they feel really passionate about to tell them, okay, here's 100 bucks to get started. If you show me that you are serious about this, I will give you $1,000 to push forward, to do what you do need to do to actually build out this idea. And so that's gonna be my investor mentality with my kids is using a book like The $100 Startup to start the conversation, see what they're interested in, and to validate how seriously they are taking it, and then be willing to invest in them building something for themselves. I want them to be able to channel that passion. This is something that I didn't know about when I was younger. Um, Entrepreneurship wasn't really a big thing in my house. My father uh, was an FBI agent. My mother was a teacher. And so bringing the entrepreneurship skill set that how do you how do you find something you're passionate about showing up to do passionate about building the website passionate about creating the content passionate about creating an offer selling all of it you know showing them that skill set and how easily it can be done and how you can validate an idea and grow it from there i want that to be part of our household culture and so that's my my investment plan uh, for my kids um, as they age up I don't know how many cracks I'm going to give them or how many bites of the apple I will give them on, hey, here's $100 to get it started, but it'll be more than once because they need to have room to fail uh, as well. Now, once I make the $1,000 investment, then I'm basically going to say like, hey, you have to see this through. If you don't, there may be some type of repercussion. Hey, you're going to have to work off the money, yada, yada. But otherwise, you'll be able to keep the money that you are making from your own venture I may give myself a little cut of it because I'm at least smart enough to be an investor. I know it's my kids, right? But hey, if they hit the next big idea, if dad takes seven and a half percent, I think we'll be okay. I think we'll be all right if that happens and I can live on an advisory capacity. Uh, So that's a little inside baseball in my own family. So yeah, get a copy of this book, The $100 Startup. Give it to friends, give it to family, give it to people who need that inspiration to just go and do something and don't be afraid to just do something and be scrappy in your own law firm. Let's let's bring that culture back into the marketing space for law firms of getting scrappy, getting it done, tapping into spaces uh, and building our next six or even seven figure opportunities by validating the first 10,000 bucks. That's what I have for you today for on today's coffee sode of They Don't Teach Us in Law School. I look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. Bye now.